Hi, welcome to episode 28 of Talk About the Passion, which is really episode 90. But since episode 28 no longer exists for one reason or another, this 90th episode is now episode 28, or technically episode 92, since two episodes of this podcast no longer exist for one reason or another. Confused? Me too. Um, I have a couple of good guests coming up the next couple of weeks, but I've been wanting to do this one for a bit by myself on here and finally I've gotten around to it. So I have a confession to make. I worked at a few different used record stores in Massachusetts and New Hampshire in the late 80s and well into the 90s. And yeah, I probably judged you unfairly when you brought, you know, bought whatever edgy people like me felt like we needed to shit on that week. I've since changed and I'm at a point in my life and have been for many years where if I don't like something, I just don't talk about it. And I certainly don't do that thing where someone will, you know, post on Facebook, they're going to see a band and then a bunch of people start talking about how much they love that band and hey, we're having a discussion and then that one guy or girl shows up, this band sucks, this band's overrated, or my favorite, who? Like someone is talking about, I don't know, Turnstile and that person has to show up, you know, that annoying guy that you always snooze for 30 days and he's usually in his 50s who you cringe every time you get a notification they uh, comment on something yeah that guy buddy you know go home nobody wants to smell what you're stepping in you know I've had a few people ask to do an episode of this podcast just to shit on a band or their fans or whatever and that's you know the furthest away from uh, anything I'm interested in putting out there I'd have to change the name of the podcast if I was you know doing something like that you know Way before I started working at any record stores, or I'd visit Tower Records on Sunset Strip. I lived there as a kid for a few years. My dad was in the record business at A&M Records, and um, he had an account there, I think. I don't know if that's just... That. Yeah, we have an account there. I don't know what that even means. Um, but we, he would go there, and we would go there on like a Sunday, and he'd let my brother and I each pick, you know, two or three records out. You know, I, of course, would pick out, you know, Kiss and... Ted Nugent, that kind of thing. Every once in a while, though, you'd, you know, try something different and score a good one. Or like the time, you know, my and my brother disputes that this was actually him and not me. Maybe, you know, maybe it was a team effort. Uh, when we got home uh, from these trips, my dad would hand out the records. And, you know, off we'd go into our rooms and spend the next few days, you know, dissecting the record. Uh, one time a copy of Frank Zappa's Live in New York. That pink one that has the, you know, the side-long, sick version of Purple Lagoon. Yeah, you know that one. We we you know we didn't care about that song though. We wanted what was on side one, the, you know, the opener of the album, "Titties and Beer," the song that has that interlude in the middle where Frank Zappa argues with Terry Bozio, who's playing the devil. Uh, it's it's actually aged pretty well, unlike some of uh, Zappa's catalog, which I can't really get through at this point. So my dad pulled this one out and puzzled why we would pick this. You know, two kids into sticks and kiss and you know, fog hat, whatever and all of a sudden we're buying a, a Frank Zappa album. You know what? You know, I was seven. My brother was nine. He asked us to name a song on the record and not wanting to say the word titties in front of my dad. There was silence. My dad, you know, probably rolled his eyes and finally handed it over. And that, you know, became one of our favorite albums. But well, th- th- that song, I don't think I listened to that entire album until I was, you know, 26 and just going through that Zappa phase. The first record shop I worked at uh, was called Rocket Records, and it was in Saugus, Massachusetts, on Route 1, which is essentially like a highway that has, you know, just strip malls after strip malls. The store was north of, on the northbound side. 
uh, north of the Orange Dinosaur and just south of the rock on the side of the road that for many years had SSD control spray painted on it. Uh, Longwood Road in Lynn, Mass is pretty close to that rock. Uh, so if you know what, what that means, you can kind of guess who might have painted that on that rock. In our plaza, there was a restaurant called Augustine's, which had a, um, I think it was a buffet-style thing. And that was a pretty big restaurant for old white people to come and get lasagna and cheeseburgers. And we would often go over there. There was a liquor store in our uh, little place. There used to be a stereo store there, Techniques. No, uh, what was that place called? I don't know if you remember. Let me know. A dialysis center, a hair salon, and a bathing suit shop. I can't remember. I can't believe I remember all this stuff. Rocket Records was a key player in the underground metal scene in Massachusetts. There wasn't many places carrying, you know, early, you know, new wave of British heavy metal stuff. You know, uh, Bob Mayo from 80s uh, thrash metal band Wargasm and three-time guest on this here podcast. He talked about going on there when he was on uh, the podcast and discovering a lot of that uh, new wave of British heavy metal. And Rocket carried stuff that most record stores weren't carrying. Uh, lots of underground and independent music with a good chunk of it being metal. You know, you weren't going to find a Raven album at uh, Strawberries or, or whatever. And funny to think, you know, as the two main owners of the store, Fred and Hayden. Hayden I never had met. Hayden ran the store in, New in Nashua. We had two stores, the Saugus one in Nashua. Uh, and those two guys were the least heavy metal people I know. You know, if I remember, there was a lot of world beat music. When Fred was in, you know, uh, because, you know, what's really going to connect with a store full of uh, denim-clad customers on a Saturday afternoon is, you know, a 40-minute album of steel drum music or, you know, whatever Dave David Byrne was probably grooving out to at that time. I was a regular there as a teenager, even though you had to have someone drive you up there because it was, you know, there was no public transportation to take you to Route 1 in Saugus. I think maybe you could have taken a the 442 from Swampscott to... Central Square and maybe another bus, the Walnut Street bus to Saugus. I think that probably would have done. But you would have had to walk on Route 1. Past Godfrey's, that creepy hotel, the Knoll, whatever the hell it's called. The, the Grassy Knoll or something like The Pine Knoll or something. Um, and then Carl's Sausage Kitchen. And then you would be um, in the Rocket Records parking lot. I, I remember my... So, you know, you'd have your parents drive you up there, our friend. You know, I didn't have a... a car when I was that young when I started going there at like 14 or whatever I remember my friend Peter had this import U2 thing that was basically their first four seven inch singles I think it was called like U2 play or something like that I think it had the out of control uh single 11 o'clock tiktok I will follow and maybe a new year's day single uh, the, the early the great early stuff I mean I like all all of U2 you know I bet Bono was rocking a world beat album or two back in the day too. I think Peter's dog or something chewed that record up and he made his mom drive up to Rocket to buy him another one. And, you know, he lived in the, the big house section of Swampscott, so it was a much more of a longer drive than I had because they were on the, the more northern side of uh, Swampscott, closer to the Marblehead, you know, border, where I lived in the more blue collar side, uh, right on the line of uh, Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, my brother worked there when I was a teenager, and I was eventually hired. Apprehensively, as the owner said, they had a policy of not hiring family members, brothers specifically. You know, and thinking back on that, there's no way that guy had any list of policies, you know. Imagine him and Hayden in some, you know, candlelit cabin in the woods. Bring me the scroll. I have a policy to add, you know. This little two-foot imp and a long cape comes scurrying out of the darkness and 
hands Hayden the scroll. Rocket Records will not hire anyone who shares the same blood. If it is found that an employee shares blood in any relation up to and including third cousin, they shall be punished by three hours of steel drum music. Fred eventually bent that policy and hired me to work on the weekends for credit. Uh, I had a job during the week at the supermarket or something like that, and, uh, and then I'd work there for credit. I don't remember what I even made, but it was right after I graduated high school, so it was probably like $42 in credit or something. But I was psyched, free music, kind of. I, wor- I ended up working there until they closed in the early 2000s. My brother left at one point. Our good friend Al Quint took over as manager, and I went on to making uh, actual money there instead of credit. Um, but I would often, because I was there, I would often spend a good chunk of that money there. Uh, Al would pick me up in the mornings. We would work together, and he was my boss, sort of. He was also a bandmate and a good friend for a few years at that point. Uh, Al eventually left, and the store was bought out by two other people, one being a friend I knew from Newbury Comics and this guy, Keith. Uh, Her and Keith, uh, Kara and Keith, ran the store through the late 90s, I guess it would have been. I don't remember the actual reality of that. Uh, If he bought the store, they did it together or what, but Kara remains a good friend to this day. And, and actually, before they bought it, um, you know, Greg Delaria worked there for a little while with me. If you're in the metal scene in Boston, you definitely know who Greg is. And that was always fun working with him. I've known him for since the early 80s. You know, Kevin Baker, uh, who sang in the Hope Conspiracy, uh, worked there for a little bit. And, uh, yeah, good dudes. So, yeah, uh, Keith and Kara took it over. I worked there for about... 11 years. Uh, Kara, I still talk to. Keith, I've lost touch with, but did hear recently had some health setbacks, so that was sad to hear. In the late 90s, I got a full-time job at the record label Rounder Records, uh, where I'd work for about 11 years, slinging uh, Raffi CDs and uh, Alison Krauss music. At that time, I remained at Rocket, though, on the weekends and an occasional night shift. During my you know entire time at Rocket Records, we obviously had our share of regulars. Some were awful, like this guy's zipperhead Ed. He would come in, and he was like this big, giant Polish guy. He was, he was probably in his late 20s. Uh, he had a flat-top haircut and a big space in the middle of his teeth like David Letterman or Flea. He, looked, he basically looked like Alfred e. Newman, like jacked up on steroids. He would come in and buy like three used cassettes at a time and then try to return one later that day or, you know, come in and try to sell you seven tapes. And it was always like... I don't know, like the second Junkyard album, a, you know, a Quiet Riot album you never even knew existed, and then five Tesla tapes. You'd say, okay, Ed. You know, we didn't call him Zipperhead Ed to his face. How about $5 credit for these nine cassettes? He'd, he'd agree, and he'd get the $5 credit or $37 worth of cassettes he bought a month earlier and use it to buy, like, one docking tape, and then he'd owe us $2, you know. Uh, the reason we called him Zipperhead Ed was because he was an idiot. You know, he would stand there and have small talk with you and just stand at the counter with this weird, you know, half smile on and ask mundane shit. Hey, you think you, uh, you think you guys will get that new L.A. Guns when it comes out? Yep, Ed, sure we will. Good old zipperhead Ed. I wonder how he's doing. Hey, uh, you ever listen to Badlands? I, me- I remember one time there was a Voivod tape sitting on the counter and he goes, he picked it up and he goes, Vivid? I go, nope, Ed, Voivod. See the O? Oh, oh yeah. Zip ahead, Ed. 
you know, and, and then there's the regulars who hung around and you'd shoot shit with them for hours, you know, and they were like fine to be there. Uh, you know, one of these guys was my friend, bro. Uh, we were going to Salem State College at the same time where I wasn't paying any attention to anything remotely uh, that had to do with school. Um, it was basically working the radio station there, playing this band called Black Barbie with Bro and our friend Gretchen. Uh, you know, but Bro would come up on Saturday mornings, like when I opened, you know, he'd bring a coffee or whatever, and then we'd hang out for, you know, a few hours. At one point, we talked about starting a band, and we did. And at one, you know, one point we we needed a, a name for the band, and uh, we're going back and forth. And he just said Presley. Uh, I tore a piece of uh, the cash register tape, the cash register tape, and he wrote it down, and thus uh, Presley was started. You know, we started as a three piece. Briefly tried doing the four piece, uh, and then went back to being a three piece. And that's when we did our best stuff, in my opinion. You know, that band lasted about a decade, and uh, we recorded stuff with Steve Austin from Today's the Day, which is the song you hear at the beginning of this, all the episodes of this podcast, Vodka and Orange Juice, uh, is from the record we recorded with him. And, hey, I still have that piece of paper that says Presley somewhere. And Bro now, Bro now owns a great record store up in Salem, Mass., but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah, we we, and we also re- we recorded with uh, Tim from Green Magnet School and Black Helicopter, which uh, Arnie, our bass player, went on to play with a black helicopter until recently and that actually that record we recorded um with with tim we sent to kramer the the producer the guy from Bongwater, and uh he mastered it and uh, but we never put that record out but i, me- I remember i sent that that tape the the the, the files down to to kramer well digitally i don't know maybe we sent him a cd i don't remember but uh and he sent me an email, and he goes, "Your music crashed my computer. There was something wrong with the file, or something like that." Anyway, uh, that record's called "The Mansion," and you can find it on the Presley Bandcamp page. During a lot of this time, my brother and I would also go to those record conventions. He would, and he would also often have a table selling stuff. I would work at, and uh, you know, sometimes I wasn't into doing those because uh, it was a lot of work. It was a long day. And then most of the vendors at those were like selling doo-wop, you know, you know, this was more in the mid to late eighties and they, you know, would be blasting doo-wop and you'd have to work your way through a bunch of crap to find the, you know, few people selling the good stuff. I found my copy of the SOA no policy, uh, there, the second pressing for $60, which, you know, at that point I wasn't really spending $60 on records at, you know, age 20, uh, but I'm glad I did, you know, that's one of the few records I've managed to hold on through the years. You know, and you'd get to know the dealers over time. Um, but, you know, they'd just be fucking blasting doo-wop music. And there would just be a sea of those guys in those satin baseball jackets that all, you know, so-and-so is fucking, you know, Saturday sock hop or some, you know. It was like the, you know, I, I know a lot of people in the rockabilly scene and they get like a, a bad rap. Not a bad rap, but they're an easy target for a lot of people. But I feel like this was sort of like a precursor to that. But these guys weren't like good looking and dressed well like the, you know, the Rockabilly people. These were like guys that looked like, you know, the big ragu from Laverne and Shirley or, you know, the, with the curly, greasy hair and, you know, Frank's karaoke company, you know, jacket. This is one of those guys that used to come in Rocket Records and had, what was that guy's name? It was Moose or something like that. And he, had, yeah, he wore a satin jacket and he was like, 
he would come into Rocket Records, and he was another one of those guys that would just fucking stand there and talk to you, and you would feel like, I mean, I'm going to fall asleep while I'm talking to this fucking guy. And he'd he talk like this. I remember he'd, he'd talk like this. He'd be like, hey, uh, yeah, I was at the, the store last week, and uh, this guy's, uh, he's selling this for $4 cheaper than you guys are, you know. Just, uh, you know, just so you know, they get it $4 cheaper. Yeah, and then he would talk about the karaoke bar he was, you know, singing at that night. Yeah, I'm going to do uh, two Billy Joels tonight, and, uh, you know, maybe I might try that Robert Plant song, you know. Yeah, I'm glad that guy's not in my life anymore in any kind of capacity whatsoever. You know, he he might be dead for all we know. You know a guy named Moose out there that frequented uh, karaoke bars around Saugus or, you know, Peabody? Let him know we're still out here. Um, but so back to these, these record shows, you know. You could find good stuff, and you know, every once in a while, you'd find that cool booth, and they'd have you know, Venom seven inches and stuff. And you know, like I said, I got the SOA single there, and my you know, my brother would sell a lot of stuff there, and he made pretty good money. Yeah. So one one of the dealers was this guy Ron. He owned a store. That, you know, I didn't I didn't really know him that well. My brother did, but I was kind of shy at that point, so I didn't really pay that much attention when people were, you know, talking to us. But this guy, Ron, was hyper, and he never stopped fucking talking. He had this big wide eyes and a smile. He almost looked like, if you've ever seen that movie Magic with Anthony Hopkins, that puppet, Corky, he kind of looked like him. And if you know that movie and you know Ron, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I saw Ron, like, three years ago for the first... I should probably talk about that at the end of this, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but he, I saw Ron at an Iron Maiden concert a few years ago here in uh, in Mansfield, and uh, so it was cool to see him. I hadn't seen him since I left uh, his his store. Uh, but so, yeah, so he he was this hyper guy, and he would always come and talk to us, and he was one of those guys who would, like, while he was talking, he would, like, rock back and forth, and, like, couldn't stand still. And uh, he was always dressed like a kid. He, you know, he dressed like Charlie Brown, kind of like shorts, a t-shirt. It would be the dead of fucking winter. And he's wearing like a gray t-shirt, no gloves or anything, white socks pulled up, you know, kids or whatever. He was definitely a character and one of the few guys I liked, you know, enjoyed talking to because of that. So at one point he mentioned he had a record store up in Bill Rickham, Massachusetts. My band at the time uh, was this band called Lugnut. And we practiced in a practice space, uh, which was in Billerica on Route 3A. And it was attached to this place that called that sold swing sets and yard statues, that kind of thing. So it was weird. Uh, only living witness practiced there. And there were often times when they were there and it was a futile to practice because they were so loud. And But also amazing because, hey, we can sit here and listen to Only Living Witness, you know, run through an instrumental version of Slug six times in a row. Or we can play our stupid, you know highest derivative fucking crap that seven people are gonna see us play at some point but i I remember being there uh, up there at once and as most bands did during the you know down times you'd fuck around with cover songs and they started jamming out it was just the band no uh jonah wasn't there uh but they were doing a spin doctor song and you know years later i saw uh guitar player uh, craig silverman posted videos on Instagram of him posting like playing guitar solos from stuff from Journey to you know Metallica you know whatever everything in between so I think he is you know aside from being just a great guitar player and some that's played in some amazing bands you know Only Living Witness Agnostic Front Slapshot Blood for Blood I mean come on Uh, but he's a talented guy and I think he, he must be an encyclopedia of music because you know 
you see him play all these great solos. Anyway, speaking of Jonah, Jonah worked at that at Ron's record store in Bill Ricker, which was called Slip Disc Records. And I think Ron was actually trying to fill his position because I never worked there while Jonah worked there. I went up and interviewed with him and was hired on the spot. My first day working there, he had me also close the store by myself, which I thought was kind of weird. He's like, yeah, just come in. Here's a key. I trust you. You know, I'm like, okay. Before he left, though, there was this bag of small rubber bands behind the... Mind you, this is like the second time in my life I've been like alone with this guy. Before, it was always like, you know, in in the at a record convention where there's, you know, a bunch of, you know, my brother, those guys in the satin jackets with the, the karaoke, probably that guy Muth. Hey, how's it going? And Ron, you know, so I knew, this is the first time I'm alone with him. And before he leaves, there's this bag of small rubber bands behind the counter. And he grabbed a few and said something along the lines of, yeah, I put these on my dick so I don't get off too quick. Uh, so, you know, when he said that, I knew I was going to enjoy this job. And this was another job where I met a lot of guys I'm still good friends with today. You know, first, my coworker, Ken, we played a lot of shows together. Uh, at the time, he played in a band called Big John Stud with... Uh, you know, Dave Jarvis, who I'm now friends with, and who's, you know, played with Worshipper, and and Ken, you know, he played in Ichabod, so Ken, when Ken was in Ichabod, I played in Presley, and we did a lot of shows together, and we, we ended, ended up sharing a rehearsal space with them years later in that uh, Bill Ricker place, or Burlington, or something, I don't know, and these guys are all solid folks, uh, there was a guy, Jason, you know, he was a pizza delivery kid, and he would come by and hang, and we became good friends. And now, you know, thanks to social media, we're good friends and talk often on there. Yeah, all those Bill Ricker and Merrimack Valley people that frequented the shop or were part of the music scene around there were cool. They had a different vibe than North Shore people where I came from. You know, maybe it was because they all loved hockey, so they had an edge. Well, people played hockey up north, too. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. One night in the dead of winter, Ken, Jason, and a few other guys went to see James Brown playing Lowell. Lowell, Massachusetts. Jack Kerouac. Yeah, James Brown. So we met at the record store and then carpooled in two different cars to the show. The show was as, you know, good as you'd expect a James Brown in the show in the late 90s show to be, you know. It was good. You know, I don't I have no clue who any of the people in the band were. It definitely wasn't anyone uh, famous. You know, Fred Wesley wasn't there, you know. But at the show... All of us bought these giant, these James Brown pins. It was just like this, like three-inch round circle that was just his face and his, you know, hair sticking up. So after the show, we were dropping people off at the shop to get our cars because, you know, we we went into two cars instead of four or five or whatever it was. And because it was so cold, some people had to use the bathroom and warm their cars up. So I opened the store up and we went in there to do that. The shop was in a strip mall in the middle of town. So, of course, when someone drove through that parking lot and saw cars in front of the record store and people coming in and out, they called the police. Ken was pulling his van out of the parking lot in front of me. There was a red light. And right when it turned green, three or four police cars surrounded all of us. They had us all get out at gunpoint, literally. Face, uh, lay, lay face down on the ground. Mind you, it was probably six degrees out. You know, it's January at, you know, one in the morning. They asked us over and over what we're doing there. You know, I was finally able to explain I had the key to the store. And although, you know, I'd rather he not, he could call the owner and confirm who I was. I honestly, at this point, don't remember what the solution was. I don't know if they did call Ron or if I just gave the guy the key and he went and tested it. All I know is when we finally let us, when they finally let us all stand up, all six of us were wearing those big James Brown buttons on our jackets. And it was just looked funny. 
you know, we caused a lot of ruckus in that store. I remember after hours, we would often hang there in the back room and shoot the shit and smoke a couple of joints, which probably would have been frowned upon by Ron in retrospect. Um, one night, Ken or I uh, sprayed a, a fire extinguisher in the air. It was one of those yellow powder ones, and it went over pretty much the entire CD area of the shop. So that was fun to clean up. But, you know, months later, you know, Ron would be ringing something up and it would have yellow powder all over it. And he'd be like, what the fuck is this? And you'd have to make believe he had no idea, you know. So maybe it was, I don't know, chalk dust. There was some teachers in here looking through the Paul Simon CDs the other day, and they had chalk dust all over their, you know, tweed blazers, and here we are. Uh, next door to there was a pizza shop. On a, and on a couple occasions, there was a way to sneak in there, crouch down really low, and open the, you know, the, that little metal ingredients thing where they, you know, take all your stuff, the ingredients, you know, to make your thing, and make yourself a sub. I think you could even make a pizza if they had just left and the ovens were still, still warm, you know. This is just something I heard happened. I don't know if it actually did happen. Ron ran that store kind of weird, but it worked. Uh, since distributors charge so much for, you know, whole, wholesale for new releases, on Tuesday mornings when new records would come out, he'd go to Circuit City in Nashua, New Hampshire, where there was no tax, and he would buy multiple copies of all the new releases for, you know, $10 with no tax, and then we'd sell them for $15. At one point, he got into the bootleg tape world, which was a nightmare. You know, we constantly had these, you know, seven tape machines running, you know, copying just terrible-sounding live shows on t cheap TDK tapes. He had a summer shop at Hampton Beach in New Hampshire, and I would work there on the weekends, which was often pretty hard. 10 a.m. to midnight, there was no bathroom in there. You had to go to the hotel above us, so it's, you know, 1.07 p.m., and you realize you have to pee, and there's five people in there. You know, the place was tiny. You have to, you have to wait until they leave. All of a sudden, there's one person left, and you have the back-in-five-minute sign in your hand, ready to go. And just as they're leaving, a guy comes in with his 10-year-old son to look at Beanie Babies. Oh, yeah. Ron started selling Beanie Babies at one point. That was a whole type of person to deal with, I tell you what. You think us, you know, nerds who talk about, you know, different versions of an album that were, you know, made at a different pressing plant are awful to talk to? Well, wait until you meet a snobbish Beanie Baby person. They would turn their noses up at you. Why are you selling this for that much? Everyone has this one. This is ridiculous. Dude, I'm just trying to make enough money to buy an eighth of fucking weed tomorrow and take my girlfriend to see the Lemonheads next week. I say, wearing a stussy hat over my goateed head. He'd leave and you'd finally get to go upstairs and pee. At, you know, 2.07 now. He'd leave and you'd finally get to go upstairs. I think at one point I was working the full-time job at Rounder during the week and Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to midnight, or maybe earlier. Those were long days, and since, you know, it was mostly foot traffic or tourists, it wasn't like working at one of the other record stores where people would come in and, you know, talk about music with you and, you know, that kind of thing. Although, uh, at one point, there was a coffee shop next door, and the couple who ran it were this nice couple, Jim, and I don't remember what his wife were, but they, they were hippies. But the guy, Jim, was like this angry guy. He was like a hockey guy. Uh, he seemed like he was already ready, always ready to like fight people, which is, you know, like a common theme in, in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, especially in the summer. There's just a lot of terrible people walking around up there. But he'd be, you know, like this fucking guy out here, I'll fucking, this fucking piece of shit. And then he'd come in like three minutes later. 
Hey, man, Jerry sounds so sweet on this fucking Stella Blue, man. Check it out. At one point, him and his uh, wife hired this girl, who I later learned was a heroin addict and was fired for stealing money. Um, let's call her Kathy. Uh, we became friendly, and I really wanted to ask her out, but I never did. Or maybe I tried, and she changed the subject. Um, who knows, you know, whatever. That was pretty much me in the 80s and 90s. Oh, hey, uh, you want to go out sometime? I mean, you don't have to. I was like a walking descendant song. Anyway, this girl was in there and talking to me and at one point picked up a copy of Replacements Let It Be and said something like, such a great one, right? And I nodded my head in agreement all the while knowing I, even though it was currently, you know, 1996, I had never heard this record in my life. You know, I could recite every, you know, R.E.M. Smith's Cure lyric, you know, front words and backwards, but, you know, knew all the fancy punk rock records, but uh, for whatever reason, I never listened to that uh let it be replacements album so of course i went out and got my own copy and played the shit out of that i knew the opening song i will dare but not the rest of it and you know i was pleasantly surprised that there was that cover of uh, black diamond on there uh maybe two weeks later i played it in the shop when she was in there you know i knew like on purpose and she didn't even acknowledge it you know you know that probably sent me to my journal for a month oh my god i'll never love it's it's fine though being lonely and sad is cool and Better than fake people smiling at shit. Mm. Most of the years working at these shops, we sold CDs and cassettes. We carried vinyl of underground stuff and some used regular rock catalog stuff, but I hadn't been buying records as much at that point, just CDs. At Rocket Records, the you know the vinyl that we sold was... A lot of times we did consignment with people that had like expensive punk rock records or, or that kind of thing. I remember this guy came in. I was working by myself, and he had a stack of like six records. And normally if someone wanted to sell stuff that looked like, you know, this is worth money, you you didn't want to rip people off. I mean, probably as a business person, you probably do. But as like a record store that wanted a reputation of, you know, being good people, you would say, hey, you know, this Misfits record is worth $80. You want to put it on consignment? Because if we buy it outright from you, we're going to give you $3 for it. But if you want to put it on consignment, we'll put it on the wall. And when it sells for eighty dollars, you'll get sixty-five, and we'll get fifteen. Is that how the math works? Something like that. You know, a lot of people would do that, and it was a good way to, you know, get rid of your stuff because this was before eBay. You know, most record stores weren't giving money, you know, good money for that. So that that was the way to do that. But I remember this guy came in with a stack of records, and it was the first G.G. Allen record, the the pre, you know, I want to fuck your mouth or whatever, all that kind of stuff. It's like like the first Gigi Allen album, the first Screwdriver album. Those like the safe ones for both of those bands. But yeah, the Gigi Allen one has that what Cherry Love Affair, and that's that's it's a good punk rock record. It's not amazing, but um, it's better. It's better than the stuff that he did later. Oh, they had a, a couple of good songs like No Rules. My band uh, Lugnut covered that. Like you care, and I like Drink Fight Fuck. That's a good song too. And that's my motto too, so that's that's kind of why I like that song. But this guy, he had that, and he had uh, maybe like an Fuse record or a GBH record, the Crucifix, uh, Dehumanization, maybe a Boston Art LA. It was like five or six records. So you know, he said, I'm, "I'd like to get rid of these." I was like, "All right, well," and I kind of explained to him the thing I just talked about, where you know, we only really give a few dollars for this stuff, but if you'd want to do it on consignment, blah 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 we can do this. And he said, oh, no, I just wanted to get the new, you know, whatever the fucking, t- Matchbox 20 CD or some fucking thing like that. 
these were my brothers. He died, and we were just trying to get rid of him. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll give you $15 for these. And then I paid the cash register $15, and I got those seven records for $15 for myself. And, uh, yeah, so that happened. I sold a lot of my shit that I wish I hadn't, like that first Jerry's Kids album, this, you know, the Siege demo, Misfit stuff, you know. But in, the, in my 40s midlife crisis, I was making zero money and spending what money I had on nothing. And, you know, once I finally made my way back to Massachusetts, found a place with a little space and a job, and I, you know, I restarted collecting records. You know, I still, still had a good amount of records, but once I got back into it, I, I got pretty deep, and I'm still down there right now. I just got my ninth copy of uh, the Minor Threat compilation, the one that has the first two seven inches on it. Uh, so I have nine of those now. Do I need nine of those? Not really, but I kind of do. When I first started getting back into this, I was hitting a few different Newberry comics. There's, there's one in, there was one in Bellingham, Massachusetts, which is close to where I live now. And that was a good shop. And then there's one in Norwood, which is a bigger store with a great selection of vinyl. But the pricing was also uh, always too high for me, especially considering it seemed like a lot of the records, the used ones weren't actually cleaned and they, you know, not that they grade stuff at those stores, but it just seems like they would just buy anything and just put it out and price it for whatever it was worth as like very good or very, you know, very good plus or mint, you know. And then you'd open it and it would be like, this isn't, um, this isn't a nice thing that you did to me. Uh, but they were still great for, you know, used CDs and new CDs. But, you know, and man, for the last few years, it's been like a buyer's market for... CDs, you can get a lot of catalog stuff for, you know, 4 to $5 now. So, if, And I do that, too. I'm, like, at the store, and I just I realize I need to hear this, you know, Jethro Tull album. Even though I can just pull it up on my iPod and listen to it, I need to have a physical copy of, uh, you know, The Minstrel in the Gallery in my car for three months, and then I'll sell it again, or it'll just get lost at some point. And, you know, I probably have 3,000 or so CDs, you know, most of them are in those big wallets that hold like 300 each. I have like a closet full of those. But yeah, like some days, like I said, you need a copy of Boston Don't Look Back on CD because it's $3, and maybe deep down inside of me, I feel like that album's gonna, you know, suddenly disappear from the world. You know, I can stream it, there's no reason to even own a physical copy of it. It's, uh, it's And it's obviously not as good as the first one. And, you know, come to think of it, I don't need to own a copy of that record. So that's a bad example. I'm, I apologize. I eventually grew tired of Newberry Comics was mainly because I went so much. I just kept seeing the same stuff over and over. You know when that happens? When you're like a record person and you just keep seeing the same shit over and over. You're like, oh yeah, that same Paul Anka album is still there. Um, anyway, my friend Bro, who I talked about earlier... Uh, opened up a record store in Salem, Mass., called Residency Records. I haven't visited the new shop, which is uh, bigger than the, the original smaller one, which is on Bridge Street. But he seems to be doing pretty good down there, and it's in downtown. But that's uh, you know, on, I think, 7 half Church Street in Salem. And uh, if you look up the shop, Residency Records, on Instagram, give them a follow. There's always good updates. And, you know, he posts on new release days. You know, word of mouth works with record stores for sure, but having an active presence on social media makes it even better. A lot of these these new stores or stores that have been around for a few years are getting, you know, more popular again because of an active um, social media presence. It definitely helps because that's how people find shit. So it's cool going in there and now being that guy on the other side of the counter that, you know, 
in between looking through stuff is just hanging around in there and you know i always wonder if like people are the customers are coming in and they're like who's this fucking guy just standing here so yeah i'm that guy now that's like i, I went to see uh a few years ago i worked at this warehouse in Danvers, massachusetts and these young fellows that worked in there uh, had a band called carnivora so they invited me to come see them at one point at a place in Salem. I can't remember. It's underground. It's not Kodo. It's across the street from there. But you would go downstairs. And I went in there and uh, they were fucking really good young dudes. And now they're like doing very well for themselves. This was probably, I don't know, seven years ago or something. But I was in there and I remember I was wearing a Venom shirt and I was, you know, like 47 years old. And I was like, I'm this guy now. I remember this like when I would go to like metal shows when I was in my like a teenager and there'd be that one guy, like old guy in the back with like a Saxon shirt, like gray hair. And you'd be like, who the fuck is that guy? So I was that guy at this show. Um, but anyway, so now I was that guy at the record store, you know. And this, this has also been an occurrence at my newest uh, discovery, Wantlist Records in Newton, Upper Falls. And that's a shop uh, my good friend Brian Coleman opened. He's been on this podcast before, as has Bro, actually. And he's written some amazing uh, books on hip-hop, like Rakim told me in the, the Check the Technique books. So that shop is small, and it's inside this little antique mall building. They've got a great selection there, and, you know, Brian's great to talk to. So I've enjoyed going in there to see him and his uh, partner hang out for a few hours, you know, like old guys do. And, you know, I've been there a few times now, and uh, there's been other people in there, and we've, you know, he's introduced me to them, and we've shot the shit with them. And, yeah, I've been in there, like... Uh, a number of times now and it's like a half hour from my house so it's like a and you don't have to get on the highway because i'm old now and i don't really like you know driving on the highway at this point i'd rather drive through the fucking trees you know i went there yesterday though and i i bought judas priest hero hero uh stained class i bought a 12 inch of uh, run dmc king of rock which I might have, but I, I don't know. I like those profile uh, 12-inch singles, the red ones, you know. Um, and I have a bunch of Run DMC ones, but I, I don't know if I have King of Rock. I will probably won't look for another two weeks, but I have a, another one now. Neil Young, After the Gold Rush, which is another one I think I might have, but I don't know. And uh, U2, Unforgettable Fire, speaking of them. Yeah, and, that was a, and I love going to that shop because he always has good stuff. And uh, another one, he does a lot of stuff on social media. So, yeah, you should check him out. Um, and then there's Village Vinyl and Hi-Fi in Coolidge Corner, Brookline, Mass. And the owner, uh, Jonathan Sandler, is, you know, a really cool guy. He's great to go in and talk to and really want to just go one of the nicest guys you can know. You know, it goes without saying, support these record shops and other independent ones. I love going and see John. You know, he has a good selection in there. Metal, hardcore, jazz. You know, he's been around the, the Boston music scene for years. And, you know, these guys are all friends. So, of course, I have long conversations when I visit, but it doesn't stop there. You know, they're great with customers. You know, it's a far cry from when you would go to a record store and there would be that guy like, you know, me standing on the other side of the counter, you know, chatting. And then like a customer would come up and the, the record store clerk just continues to kind of talk to the his friend that's hanging out there and kind of ignore the customer. Uh, these guys, my friends, you know, bro, Brian, Jonathan are there for the customers, you know, and they're, and they're helpful. And these guys are all knowledgeable people. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, they want to spread music to people, you know, that's a good thing. Right. And then, uh, out near me is their nevermind shop, which is in Upton, Massachusetts. And I love this shop. The owner, Mick, uh, is really cool. When I first started buying music again, 
I started going there. It's in Upton, Mass. Uh, it's it's small. He, you know, the he's a good selection of vinyl in there, and it's mostly like hard rock and that kind of stuff. But he's, he gets good stuff from metal and stuff like that in there. But I think a lot of the real gems are when you first walk in. There's a lot of collectible stuff there, and there's like old magazines like Circus and Cream, Hit Parader, you know, old books. He's got a lot of cool posters, and then a great selection of CDs in there as well, you know. And I always like to walk in there with uh, CDs, get CDs for my drive home there. Um, and again, it's like another thing where, do I really need REM Green on CD? No, you don't, but it's $4. You've spent $4 on worse things, you know. Remember that milkshake? Uh, you know, and I hadn't been there in a while. And I went recently, and uh, he has another employee working there, a young lady. Uh, I don't know if there was more employees, but... Uh, and they and they seem to have a good presence on social media as well. So maybe he got younger people in there to work and kind of get the, the, the store out there because it seems like they're doing well, and he posts a lot on social media, so that's cool to, to see. Uh, and I, ma- I made a random stop there like a month ago and came out with the first pressing of... Uh, Scream still screaming, so that was nice. Uh, so that's a you know a lot of words, um, and then you know there's a lot of other great records. There's you know uh, Want to Hear It Records, which is over in uh, Watertown. It's run by hardcore guys, and uh, but it's more than hardcore. They have a lot of cool stuff in there. A friend Joel Martell uh, just opened a shop up in um, I think it's in Laconia, New Hampshire, called New New Hampshire Vintage Vinyl. And uh, I'm dying to go up there because he, he posts a lot of stuff on Instagram and Facebook of stuff that's coming in. I'm always like, fuck, this is too far away. I wish I could go up there. So I'm planning on making a weekend trip up to that area at some point. So that's definitely on. And, you know, it's almost going to be because I really want to go to <laughs> that store. I, and I love that area of New Hampshire. So, you know, it would be fun to do that and uh, actually meet him in person because I never have. Well, that's a lot of uh, talk for just one person here. You know, if you like, drop, you know, some of your favorite record stores in the uh, area in the comments here. Another one I found recently was um, Red Scroll Records in uh, Connecticut. I can't remember what town they're in. But I I went down to New Haven uh, like a month ago to see uh, Built to Spill and Wilco. And I spent the night there, so I went early. And went and went to this Red Scroll Records for you know a couple hours and looked around and got a few things and that that place is great it's huge, and that's another one where I feel like uh, I would make a trip just down to go down there and like you know eat good pizza and then go to that record store you know it was pretty close to New Haven where I was staying and where the show was, uh, but that that was a good store too so yeah a lot of good stores out there and you know Discogs is also another place that's been sucking money out of me for music and uh discogs and discord records who have been uh reissuing everything under the sun lately just like not reissuing but just doing new pressings on colored vinyl and that kind of thing like they just did uh fugazi repeater on blue and what do you call it the minor threat compilation on like gray it's like a silvery gray vinyl with a new grayish cover so yeah, that's fun. But yeah, drop your answers in the comments of record stores you like to visit or, you know, where you like to buy your records, how you like to buy your records or your music. It doesn't have to be records. And you can even say the word vinyls, even though it's fucking stupid. You can say it here. It's a safe place. If you're like 26 and you're just getting into this thing, say it. It's fine. 
I'm 53. Well, I'm not 53 yet. Soon, though. Um, anyway, this concludes episode 28, which is actually episode 90, but technically episode 92. Thanks for listening.